Welcome back to the Segmentist Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It is Monday, May 16th, the second rest day of the Giro d'Italia. It was a phenomenal weekend of bike racing all over the place, everywhere from Italy to the Basque Country. We're going to talk all about it. Yesterday was the first big GC stage. We've got a, well, a triple winner over in Itzulia Basque Country. Welcome back. Ronan, how are you today? I'm good, yep. Um, good good weekend of bike racing, so can't complain. Shotty Dave, you were you were on the ground over the weekend. Yeah, it's not hard to be on the ground when the race is only like 50 minutes and an hour's drive away from me. The hard bit's getting up at six o'clock in the morning to get over to Spain because they start these women's races at stupid o'clock, don't they? It, it's it's just not right. 9am rollouts, the Spanish... Why? Are, exactly. Plus the Spanish are probably only just going to bed. They've just had their dinner. <laughs> Restaurants are just shutting the doors. They run, they run late, the Spanish. That's wild. And... Amy Jones, welcome back. We haven't heard from you since uh, since the classics. Good to have you back on the show. I almost like to think of this as my debut because I'm here as myself, not Debbie. So <laughs> we're saving Debbie for the Tour de France Femme. Special I occasion. Prob- probably only. the next time Debbie will be back. Yeah, the post dinner mm-hmm. recordings. <laughs> Let's get into today's episode. But before we do, Shadi Dave. What's going on in Whoopland? Whoop, 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 indeedy. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop. Throughout the Giro d'Italia, Whoop is partnering with EF Pro Cycling and Velon to give cycling fans a behind-the-scenes look at what riders' heart rates are doing during the race, along with everything off the bike, including recovery, training, sleep data, and over the full course of a Grand Tour. But you know what? Whoop, it's not just for the professionals, even... Mere mortals, people who have got weak legs can use it. People who are no good on bikes. Kaylee, you've been using, haven't you? <laughs> Speaking of no good on bikes, yeah, I, I, you know, got one about two and a bit weeks ago. I've been, have been wearing it ever since. And I almost think it's, it, it could be more useful for people like us that have like lives and children and, do things like drink too much beer on occasion on a Friday night and want to see what that what that does to their ability to ride a bicycle on Saturday morning. Uh, yeah, I've, I found it I found it quite useful, uh, mostly in sort of confirming concerns I already had around how much sleep I'm getting. But it has certainly you know it gives me a little notification. It's like, hey, if you want to if you want to sleep well tonight, you probably should go to bed. About now, that would be the smart thing to do. And I, I need that little sort of poke and prod to get myself uh, into a healthier state of mind, I would say. So I've been, very, I've been very much enjoying it. Plus, it it does some nifty things. Like, it picks up on my rides automatically. I don't have to, like, hit anything on my phone. I don't have to start anything, stop anything. It just kind of does it all in the background. And then at the end of the day, I take a look and see how I did. So I've been very much enjoying it. So it tells you when to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> They've just, they have, they've just released the all-new 4.0 as well, which is even smaller and smarter in design with new biometric tracking. So if you're, uh, if you're like Kaylee or me or uh, pretty much anybody here who needs a bit of a, 
a G up to get to bed or work out how fit you actually are, you can get yours today by going to whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. And when you enter the code TIPS at checkout, you'll save 15% off. That's T-I-P-S at checkout. So yeah, whoop. I have that new 4.01. It's great. And yeah, like the the heart rate actually works unlike some of the other devices that I have and highly recommended if you're like me and you're trying to balance many things in your life. It it helps you do that while also riding your bike as much as you possibly can or as well as you possibly can, I should say. So thanks to Whoop for sponsoring today's episode. Let's kick off. Let's kick, let's kick off with the Giro because quite a bit happened over the weekend. We had, well, it should have been the second GC stage, but actually kind of ended up being the first because Aetna was a bit of a, not a dud, but just more controlled racing. Blockhouse, though, on Sunday really shook things up. Saturday, with a with a pretty wild circuit around Napoli, was, well, some of the most entertaining Grand Tour racing I think we've seen in a long time. So let's let's get a little rundown. Where do we stand on this Monday morning, Ronan, on the GC. GC-wise, it's all chains except from at the very top, uh, where Juan Pedro Lopez retained his hold on the pink jersey. He crossed the line with 12 seconds to spare at the top of Blockhouse yesterday, just about fending off João Almeida, who's moved up to second overall. Roman Bardet now sits in third, and I think every, or most people's race favorite, Richard Carapaz, is up to fourth, just 15 seconds behind. So... Um, the big losers yesterday were, of course, um, uh, Simon Yates, uh, who seemed to be suffering from a knee injury that he sustained earlier in the week. Uh, Wilco Kelderman also lost a lot of time yesterday. And also Hugh Carthy, I suppose you could name him amongst the favourites, lost a bit of, bit of time yesterday. I'm probably forgetting somebody else. But I think the most exciting thing to come out of yesterday is just how close the GC is now with the top seven riders separated by just 29 seconds. That's as back as far as Mikel Landa. And even the top 10 spaced out across just about a minute, minute and a half even. You're forgetting Shadi's favorite, or maybe second favorite, Guillaume Martin, has, has worked his way back up. He lost a bunch of time in the first week, has worked his way back up into sixth place, 28 seconds back. Shadi, does this warm the cockles of your heart? There's a lot that's warm me cockles my heart this weekend. That uh, <laughs> Guillaume Martin on Bardet. Bardet on um, that final climb on Sunday was absolutely spellbinding. Like he honest, he looked great. But yeah, Guillaume Martin, the, he's doing a Guillaume Martin, isn't he? He's um, slowly climbing, one step, no, two step forwards, one step back. He's, he's getting there slowly but surely. <laughs> We don't need to dig too much into Martin's uh, tactics over the last couple of days. But yeah, he basically, you know, he kind of utilized Saturday's stage to, to claw some time back and then had a great day on Sunday. And it's, it's good to see him up there. It's good to see the French riders up there. This has been a very, been a very French Giro so far with Arnaud Damar with, with multiple stage wins. And now Roman Bardet showing his, his very fine form, which we probably should have, we, we didn't really talk about too much before the race kicked off, but the signs were there ahead of this Giro that he was going to have a good race. Yeah, he, he took his first overall GC win in a stage race in, was it nine seasons uh, yeah. at the Tour of the Alps? So, you know, for, for a GC rider, it's actually surprisingly long since he won a, a stage race before the Tour of the Alps. But yesterday on Blockhouse, 
between himself, Richard Carapaz, and Mikel Landa, they were the three clear strongest riders on, on the mountain. Uh, Richie Port did a fantastic job in setting up uh, Carapaz, who then immediately launched an attack. And it was only um, Landa and Bardet who could follow. And then they sort of <laughs> rode with each other, attacked each other, sat up together, uh, looked at each other a bit, attacked again all the way until the final kilometer where finally we had five or six riders come back together. And obviously the stage went to Jaya Hindley. Um, but in terms of who was the actual strongest in the climb, I think there can be no denying that Bardet was right up there and, and back to his, you know, well and truly back to his best, if not even better. Yeah, 570 days since Jai Hindley's uh, last Grand Tour stage win. And it's been kind of a rough go in that time. So good to see him take the victory. Bardet, though, was pretty, um, not despondent, but he is pretty bummed that he, he kind of screwed up the sprint. Basically he, he, you know, it, it was, a, it was an interesting finale and that kind of dropped and, and curved to the right. And so positioning was actually really, really important. And, and Jai Hindley was the one that came around that corner and first wheel and then ended up taking the stage win. Watching climbers sprint is so funny. <laughs> Just this like, pile of limbs and elbows and knees flopping all over the place yeah (laughs) he's he's looking more limmy than ever he's looking really skinny and like i I wonder how much of that is that like his form is down to changing teams because he's that he's that happy with dsm he's staying on he's signed for another another three seasons is any two or three seasons he's through till 2024 which is um well, a bit of a, a big shock to pretty much everybody if they keep a close eye on what's going on at DSM over the past couple of years with riders leaving left, right and centre. So it's really, really quite quite interesting to see him, A, get this form, ride so well and then be happy with the team as well. There's something definitely going on, some good uh, some good cooking on going down there. As, 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 you know, as disappointed as Bardet was in the sprint there, he, he clearly felt that he got it wrong. Hindley got it absolutely right. You could see he raced for that final corner. And I sort of fancied Almeida for that sprint. If I remember right, a couple of years ago, he won a reduced group sprint in the Giro while in the pink jersey to take a, a stage. But watching him, he, you know, of as disappointed as Bardet is, surely Almeida must feel worse about that finish because he really, you know, not only did he not make it into the corner first, but he went into the corner last and also lost quite a few bike lengths in the corner and gave himself no chance like he went down to the corner last came out of the corner last and came across the line last from that group uh, and for a rider who theoretically could have taken that sprint he he surely must be quite disappointed about that he looked on the limit more so than some of the others though i mean he, he was not in that front group of three right they, they kind of clawed their way back slowly he did they did get back but you know it takes a bit of extra punch to get into that right position into the final corner. I'm not, I'm not sure he really had it. Others in that front group, Domenico Pozzovivo was, was, in, was in the front group, 39 years old, almost, almost didn't have a team for this year because he was on the now defunct Quebeca squad, kind of picked up a very late ride with, with Wanty. And like March, Wanty. wasn't it? Yeah, very, very late. And shows up at the Giro and is currently sitting in eighth, less than a minute behind, and finished in that very select front group of six on Sunday. That one team's just going from strength to strength this year. Well, as you say, yeah, he only got that contract like end of February. And yeah, the previous two years he was with NTT and um, we call it Quebec. We won't mention the, the sponsor that 
made that team fall Next apart. Stash. That's the one. But um, yeah, it, it, that team's going from strength to strength. But the best bit is if you just want to go and, just go and look for photos of him on a team training camp because he's a, probably about a good metre shorter than everybody else on the squad out training. It's glorious, the photos. He's 53 kilos. <gasps> I thought you were no going to say he's 53 way. years old. <laughs> <laughs> No, he's not. He's not rebelling. He's not. He's not quite there yet. He's not even the oldest in the race. I mean, Valverde is forty-two, mm. right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> but he's still he's thirty-nine. He, he nearly years wasn't old. even the oldest in the front group because Valverde was just dropped towards the top. That's very true. That's very true. But still, thirty-nine years old, still, still smashing it, and still, like I said, finishing in that front group. I mean, he could finish in the top ten of this Giro. There's no question. The the biggest thing I took from it was that there is still a hope for me to break my twelve thousand seven hundred seventy five days without a Grand Tour stage one. But <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done the math for me, but uh, it's probably roughly the same. Yeah. Other surprises in that front group. Uh, let, let's talk about sort of where the GC picture stands right now. I mean, is is Richard Carapaz an even firmer favorite at this point because Simon Yates, well is no longer in the GC picture. Had a very bad day. Talked about some knee pain. Talked about the heat, which is what got him uh, ahead of the Giro. Where where do we stand now in this GC? Who 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 stands out as the clear favorite and who's gunning for a podium? What are we looking at? I think it is still pretty pretty open. Like Carapaz is probably still most people's favorite. Um uh, but you know, he certainly wasn't Head and shoulders above um, Landa and Bardet yesterday. Now, the one thing about yesterday's stage is that Landa did have a bit of a crash on one of the hairpins on, on one of the descents. You know, he didn't seem to be suffering any side effects from that. But, you know, when when Yates crashed on the Etna stage, we thought he wasn't suffering any side effects. So only time will tell if there's a problem there. But I think Bardet, you know, is, is certainly I'm with a, a chance of taking a two carapaz here. And with so few time trialing kilometers to come, so few or so many mountain stages to come, and these three riders climbing so close together, um, that's really making for an exciting race. Like I think Almeida, you know, we we did say he did struggle a bit uh, yesterday. He certainly wasn't the strongest there, but I I, I sort of marked him as fourth out of that group of uh, front or out of that front group in, in terms of strength on the climb. And you know he may well improve as as the race goes on. And if if there is a smaller gap, he is by far the best time trialist of that those few riders. So yeah, I'm thinking he's still going to fancy his chances. He probably fancies his chances of taking the pink jersey again at some point, given that he is so close now. But really, we're sort of lining up for an exciting two weeks. I think for sure. Like you look at the t- DSM team, it's actually really it's a really solid lineup. It's quite surprising who they've got in there. To support Bardet, um, it, it, it'll go toe-to-toe, famous last words, with Ineos. Like Ineos are playing the Ineos, the Sky game, I should say, because they've not done it for the past couple of years, where they're just they're riding like they used to pretty much. But DSM, like I say, it's a good lineup that they've got going on to support Bardet. So, yeah, as Ronan says, things could be... Um, could, could have some good fireworks. UAE, on the other hand, it's not the... Not the most solid of uh, supports for Almeida. So, yeah, we will see. I think one th- thing that played a major factor yesterday was the wind on that climb that we might not have on the other climbs later in the race. And, you know, where Ineos did the most damage yesterday was probably with Richie Port. 
And in that situation, with the crosswind that the riders had on the climb, it was only Carapaz getting any sort of shelter in his wheel. So that perhaps, you know, um, just exaggerated slightly how good Carapaz was, putting the others slightly more in the red before Carapaz launched his attack. So, you know, on a different climb or on the same climb with different wind conditions, we might have seen a very different race unfold there yesterday. You know, who knows what, what it would have been, but, the, you know, not only are any of us maybe not able to explode the race the way they have done in previous years, but maybe even yesterday was slightly uh, exaggerating of just how good they are this year. I was still I was still impressed with Ineos. I think on Sunday, yeah, I mean, don't get me they, wrong. They still they still could, took control of it, and they still had Richie Port when when others were were down to just just the leaders, right? But yeah, it, I mean, they certainly weren't they weren't the Ineos that we had seen in the past, right? You, you know, they they weren't there weren't three or four of them left in a group of eight or something like that. But I think that they're still going to be able to control anything that they have to control over the next couple of weeks. And I think that Carapaz is perfectly happy to sort of sit within the top five and not take pink until the last week yet. Um, I know there's lots of like caveats to when he did it, but Jai Hinder came second like two years ago in this race. And yesterday he was looking pretty good. Are we like not expecting him to carry that on or? Uh, I, I think that the, the, the sort of general sentiment is that, yeah, one, he, he was second in a pretty soft Giro. Uh, and two... Poor thing. Poor thing, yeah. <laughs> is any Giro soft, though? Like, I don't, I don't well, really know if yeah. you can actually say that. But but, but you kind of can, right? Because, because frankly, if, if there's no other major GC contenders to, to race against, then, yes, it's a, it's a somewhat soft Giro. Not an easy one, uh, just to be clear. Just an easier one. All I remember about that is the poor lad trying to put his jacket on. <laughs> that was i wonder if he's practiced that uh between between then and now but yeah i i mean i i would i would put him solidly in the top five races in this jiro which means that he has a shot at winning i think that anybody in the top five is gonna have a shot at winning but i i still it's hard for me to see past like carapaz when you're looking at the the overall victory uh, or Bardet, for that matter. I mean, Bardet has a yeah, he's had a rough couple of years, but he has a much longer Palmaris than than Hindley does. But yeah, I, I think a podium is absolutely possible. I think victory in in the right circumstances. I mean, all you need is one brief moment where Carapaz isn't doing so hot, and you gain forty five seconds, and and that's the race, right? This is a long long three weeks, as they always say. I think the big thing for Jai Hindley to come out of yesterday is that he's you know going into yesterday's stage, Bora arguably had four leaders. And and now they arguably have won. Yes, Bookman was just 16 seconds behind, but he was never really in the hunt the same way as Hindley was throughout. I, I would have put Hindley probably, you know, we, we seem to have two groups of three on the mountain, the three leading riders who were the strongest and then the three chasing behind. And I wouldn't have put Hindley as the strongest in that chasing three. Uh, but certainly if you're up there and you can win the stage on a finish like we had yesterday, you can't really be counted out for... Uh, for a race, you know, when when you are now up to you know well within the top ten overall, have been second overall previously, and should now have the backing of his his team. Also, I think. Can we Before just bring we... up? Sorry, can we just bring up Valverde because it is bananas. Everybody, no one really <laughs> ever talks about him until the race is sort of done and dusted and gone. Huh? Blooming neck, he got up there, didn't he? Didn't see that happen. And he's year, year after year after year. And nibbly. 
In, yes. Nibbly cross line right behind him. These, these are veterans of the sport. We've seen plenty of veterans do pretty good recently, like not just at the Giro, but um, uh, four days of Dunkirk, am I right in saying, with Philip Gilbert taking the pink there, an old man. It's, the, the old blokes are doing all right recently, which I suppose is a pretty decent segue into... Um, There's hope for all of us. No, into Thomas de Ghent. Well, we'll get into Thomas de Ghent in, in a moment. Very briefly before we sort of step away from the GC picture, it's maybe worth another couple words about, about Simon Yates, who who kind of imploded spectacularly. And, and his relationship with the Giro as, as a whole has been a bit rough. Uh, you know, we thought he was going to win this race before, uh, and, and he had kind of a similar day back then. It also mirrored exactly what happened to him in Asturias, right? I mean, he won, what, stages one and three of Asturias and then lost 11 minutes on stage two because it was hot. And so he, it's clearly something that he struggles with. And I don't, I don't know what the solution is for him. Uh, he did mention after the stage that he's interested in probably taking on different different challenges after this Giro. This is kind of his last run of the Giro. I mean, I think he's 29 now, which I would assume means... Vuelta or Tour de France. I mean, he's, he's had success at the Vuelta before, obviously, but probably also some, you know, some smaller one week races and things like that. But if he's, if he, for example, wants to, wants to eye the Tour de France, he's going to have to figure out the hot weather thing. I mean, the Giro is notoriously uh, comfortable uh, on that front or cold even compared to the, the heat of a French July. But I wonder how he's going to figure out that problem for himself because it, you know it was sounded like a combination of the knee the knee injury that he had which is basically he tipped over and whacked his knee on a curb and heat on sunday that that sent him what 11 sorry 11 did you say off the back did you say that he tripped over <laughs> he said that he crashed he had kind of come to a stop and then someone ran ran into him from behind and kind of pushed him and he tipped over and hit his knee on a oh, curb. Oh, okay. I honestly, like, yeah. I heard tripped over and I, like, had visions of him just, like, walking, you know, back from the supermarket <laughs> and tripping over and ruining his Giro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time something like that happened to do a, a major contender at a Grand Tour. But his, you know, his, 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 his Giro GC ambitions are over. It, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if he drops out of this race at this point, particularly if he's got knee pain. I mean, knee pain's not something to mess with. So I, I'm... Not totally confident that he's going to be in this race into the last week. Otherwise, I'd say, you know, come back. He's clearly on form. Go for a couple stage wins, something like that. But I I think he might. I personally think he's going to drop out. So uh, hopefully you already used him in your Cycling Tips Fantasy competition. Yeah, I used him yesterday on Black Race. <laughs> <laughs> Quick Cycling Tips Fantasy competition update. There's like 130 people in, in our little our little league now. Um, I'm pleased to say that I've moved up to 99th out of 127. Very proud of that. Ronan, where are you right now? I have no idea. Losing, losing Carapaz in the first week was a big loss for me. You know, he didn't crash in the race or he didn't not finish the race, but because I didn't make a pick, I got assigned him automatically for a sprint stage. Uh, <laughs> so my, my whole Giro has been hampered by a first week incident. Dane is in 35th. Uh, and the current leader, Adam Whiteway, one of our Canadian listeners, sitting up there with 97 points, followed by Nev86 and Landsvik, who's been up in that top five for quite some time. Of course, worth reminding everybody, 
the winner of this competition gets their own Shoddy Dave ad read in the podcast. And as you, you heard at the it. start, it's very, very, very good and well worth entering just for that. <laughs> is this like that? What's that thing called? Cameo, where like celebrities like give you a personalized Absolutely. message. Shoddy, yeah, you, you should do just it. start doing that. You can make some money. You could do whatever you want. You, you could you could have Shoddy sing you happy birthday. You could <laughs> whatever you want to do. And Shoddy has to do it. I mean, within reason. Like, you know, we we do we do reserve the right to reject a script <laughs> should we need to. But we'll say yes to almost anything. So Yeah, no big words in it. <laughs> <laughs> no multiple multis multisyllabic. There we go. That's the word I'm looking for. No multisyllabic words for Shoddy. Uh, spe- speaking of shoddy ad reads. Okay, then. Mid-roll time, advert time. Sit yourself comfortably because we are supported this week by the Hammerhead Carew 2. Do you want to get more out of your rides beyond just distance, time, and pace? How about advanced GPS navigation and the ability to see them upcoming hills? The ones that you might want to avoid, might want to go up depending on how fit you are. The Hammerhead Carew helps you find your path forward and unlock your full potential. The Hammerhead Carew is the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today with industry-leading mapping, navigation and route capabilities that set it apart from other GPS options so you can explore with confidence on-the-go flexibility. For a limited time, our listeners can get a free custom colour kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with the purchase of a Hammerhead Carew 2. All you need to do is visit hammerhead.io right now and use the promo code CYCLINGTIPS at the checkout to get yours. This is an exclusive limited time offer only for our podcast listeners, so don't forget to use the promo code CYCLINGTIPS and you'll get a free custom colour kit plus a premium water bottle with your purchase of uh, a very fancy Carew 2. So go to hammerhead.io, add all three items to the car and use the promo code cycling tips today. Don't and dust. Oh, look, hold on. Ronan's holding his up. Oh, yours is well good, Ronan. Yours is like That's psychedelic. Duffy. That's jazzy. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's the Flora Duffy Bermuda color kit. She's the color, kit, the color kit is just like a piece that slips on. I could revert this back to black, but I why like would you this do that? Bermuda. Well, exactly. Why would I do that when no. I've got this color? This is premium podcast content. Ronan showing us something on our on our Google Hangout <laughs> that the listeners cannot see. Uh, but you know, we can describe it. It's it's a well, it's a hammerhead Carew too with a special, like you said, Bermuda colored outside. It's cool looking. It's really cool looking. Thanks to Hammerhead for sponsoring today's episode. All right. Before we get into Celia Women, Jiro, next couple of days, let's talk through it. It's a bunch of sprint stages, basically, but, well, sprint-ish. Let's start with Tuesday. It's an interesting one to Jezzy. It's kind of a it's dead flat 100, 100 kilometers. Followed Is there by, a threes day? <laughs> or a fours day? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> tell us about Tuesday. Tell us more. <laughs> did, De- did did we accidentally invite Debbie to this podcast? <laughs> I- <laughs> it's been a long day. I came all the way from Prague for this. <laughs> we appreciate that. We do yeah. appreciate that. On Tuesday, 
<laughs> no, it's an interesting stage. I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to make my fantasy picks, and this is a, it's a tricky one because, like you said, dead flat for 100 kilometers, and then it gets into these rolling hills. We've got three Cat 4 climbs, including one that comes uh, about 8K away or tops out about 8K, 7K away from the finish line. So, you know, it's another it's another one that could go to the sprinters, could go to like a Diego Ulisse type, could go to a Vanderpol or a Benyam Germay. I think it's a, it's going to be a, a a good stage on Tuesday. Yeah, that first 100K kind of makes it, it's one of those stages where it's almost a lottery who can get in the break. And it could be, it could be full gas for the full 100 kilometers, or it could be one of those breaks that rolls off after literally as kilometer zero kite drops, uh, you know, three or four riders roll off the front. Uh, in which case, it'll probably be controlled until they, until they hit that hillier section towards the end. But it's really a, very difficult stage to call, and I wouldn't. I'm glad that I don't have Vanderpool Argumai to pick anymore because, uh, yeah, I wouldn't like to be picking for tomorrow. The the stage actually kind of reminds me of the stage from Saturday, won by Thomas Degent, which we didn't actually talk about yet, and we should because I know Ronan, you have you have thoughts on Vanderpool and the way that he executed or failed to, in this case, uh, failed to execute his particular plan. Thomas Degent, though. Proved, I think, once again that he is—he's one of the most phenomenal talents, I think, of his of his generation. He's kind of, you know, he lacks the he lacks the sort of war, any any single world beating attribute. I feel like he's not the best climber in the world. He's not the best sprinter in the world. But the the number of different types of races that he has won. I mean, let's let's not forget that ten years ago he went on a raid. He was riding for Vacan Soleil. He went on a raid on the Stelvio stage of the Giro, almost won the Giro d'Italia. That was the year that, that Ryder Hegedal and Pirito were sort of battling it back and forth. And all of a sudden, Thomas Decant comes out of nowhere and nearly wins the Giro d'Italia with a, with like a long bomb breakaway, which would have just been one of the most, it was already one of the best races of the last decade, I think. And, would have been even better. Uh, I think the first Giro I covered, the second Giro I covered, it was just a, an amazing day. So he does everything from that to you know winning small bunch sprints to going solo on a regular basis. Always picks the right day. Always always has the legs to to get away. He was phenomenal again on Saturday, and another one of those riders who just doesn't seem to be getting any older or slowing down. Despite sort of saying himself that he was getting too old and too slow and thought his best days were well behind him. But like he's got, I think he's got 17 pro wins and five of them are Grand Tour stage ones. And another five are Volta Catalunya stage ones. <laughs> so <laughs> there's not much room for any uh, smaller races on there. In fact, I don't think there is any smaller races at all. If he wins, he, he tends to win pretty, pretty big. Like. Let's, let's, let's dive into Saturday a little bit more. We don't want to spend too much time on this, but you know, Vanderpool kicked things off. Uh, kind of pulled out a, a string of pretty strong riders. I mean, Benim Gramai was sort of the first first on the wheel, and I thought that I was great to see, very much paying attention and, and uh, was ready for Vanderpool's move. But in the end, it was it was the teammates that ended up taking it. It was it was De Gent with a teammate with a lead out who was able to sort of get away. And like you said, Ronan Vanderpool and Gramai in some ways were really hampered by the fact that they had no teammates up the road and the fact that everyone was kind of looking at them and saying, this is on you. Yeah, and you know, a lot is made of both Grimai, who is extended with Wante when he's expected to go to some of the bigger teams, and Vanderpool riding with Alpeson, who 
are a big team, but you know clearly aren't uh, aren't a world tour team at least not this year. They and announced today that they want to be one tomorrow or tomorrow. They want to they want to be one next year. <laughs> yeah, which is a big shift from what they've traditionally said. They they previously were pretty happy to be pro continental, but you know, and, and I, I know it's easy to say now in hindsight when you, the team with three riders in the breakaway won won the overall. But if you're if you're um, Vanderpool or Grimai and you're in that breakaway on Saturday on a stage that is almost tailor made to suit your abilities. You know, not only do you have the the rest of the twenty two man breakaway looking at you, but if you have no teammates there to support you, it makes your job even more difficult. And I think that's where, you know, had they you know been on one of the biggest World Tour teams sent to the Giro specifically to support them, they might not have found themselves isolated like that. And I think that's what led to Vanderpool, who we know perhaps isn't the the most tactically astute. You know, launching a a solo attack, the first attack from the break. With first of all, with like 140k to go, he decided to go solo, which made <laughs> absolutely no sense. Uh, uh, but then with 46 kilometers to go, you know, he really took off. It was an impressive turn of speed. Of you know, you rarely see an attack that strong out of a break like that, especially not with 46k to go. And I, I don't think what he did was actually, you know, it, it was it was the right thing to do. What he wanted to do was try to whittle down the group, force the stronger riders to the front. They could work together. You know better when there's a smaller group, uh, and then you know it, it limits the chances of him being caught out in the numbers game later on uh, in the stage. But I think he executed it pretty poorly. You know when you when you attack that hard with so much surprise, you not only do you bring nobody with you, but everybody else has to go so deep just to follow you that when they do get to you, they're going to be you know afraid to work with you again, given how much strength you've just displayed. And how how deep into the red they've gone. So I think you know when you if you want to make a move like that, you either best to sort of you know telegraph it a little bit from somewhere in the middle of the pack. Bring Grimai with you. There's no there's no harm in bringing a couple of the strongest riders with you at that point. And then you know he's still he, he, Vanderpool would surely still have to fancy himself later in in the stage on on the terrain that we had on on Saturday. But I just yeah, it seemed like. It, it, in some ways, it seemed like he was trying to make up for, you know, perhaps that limited tactical nose that he has, and he didn't want to get caught out. But in doing so, he found himself very much caught out because as as soon as that move didn't succeed, he was always, you know, open to the counter attack. Then, which is exactly what happened. And De Gant, who was dropped by that attack, worked his way back, and you know, used his his tactical nose and you know, got away and. We we see how much work he did. I think we all assumed that he was working for for his teammate, um, but in the end, up yeah, he can do that much work. He can drive the breakaway clear. Had the had the Gant not been there, I think that break would have been caught, and then he still wins the sprint to the line. It was uh, impressive stuff. The sprint was super impressive too. I mean, he, he apparently turned to his teammate Harm van Hoek and, and said, "Like I'm the strongest guy in this move, so drive it." Uh, which clearly he was. I mean, it was. It was not even the sprint was even close with again at the, at the finish there. Uh, but I agree. I mean, it, you know, Vanderpool screwed it up. It's just a, a classic example of he's been able to just use pure power so many times in the past, but didn't work this time. I think he just does doesn't care about. I think it, it's all a big game to him, and he just throws the kitchen sink. And just sees what works. And he's used to being like able to do knotty moves like that and pull them off occasionally. 
And I think that's, I don't know, I like watching him race for that reason, is it's not like super controlled. It's just like, he's having fun with it. He's messing about. He's just like, I mean, obviously it's serious. It's his job. It's the Giro, whatever. But like, he just like, that's what I like about women's racing as well. Like, it's just that it, there isn't this kind of like controlled, tactical, it's just like everyone just throw the kitchen sink at the race, attacks kind of, even the leader, like we saw well, in the and, women. And sometimes it works. I mean, yeah. we've, we've seen Vanderpool do crazy things before and attack from 50K out and, and, and win, right? So sometimes it works and then it's great. Uh, he just couldn't couldn't quite pull it off. And I mean, you're, you're totally right in that if he raced, quote unquote, more intelligently with a little bit more tactical notes, then he'd be less interesting to watch. So good on you, MVDP, for <laughs> keeping us entertained. <laughs> <laughs> on Saturday. But not for putting ketchup on spaghetti. But Thank not you. for putting ketchup on spaghetti, which remains a cardinal sin. Let's briefly touch on some of the other races that are or some of the, some of the other Giro stages that are coming up this week, just so everybody knows what is coming. So, like I said, on Tuesday, we've got this sort of interesting, not total rehash of Saturday, but kind of a similar style. Like I said, a bunch of Cat 4 climbs. Going to be an interesting one. Stage 11 on Wednesday is dead flat finishes in Reggio Emilia 203 kilometers yep that one's gonna be not (laughs) not particularly interesting I don't think uh but the the finale will be fantastic and we'll get to see the sort of the big the big sprint lead out trains go at it once again of course Mark Cavendish is now without Michael Morku will we see him able to take on Arnaud Demar Will Caleb Ewan finally get one? It's going to be a fantastic finale on Wednesday. What I want to say is, will Diego Rosa go for another solo doomed breakaway on a pamphlet stage where he has no chance of getting any success that will ultimately have some effect on the breakaway that he does get into where he does have a chance <laughs> of success at the couple of days later? Yo, why does he keep doing that? I don't understand. I just don't. I don't. I don't get it. I mean, he's clearly got really good legs, right? And then he sticks himself in a, in a hundred, what, hundred fifty k, hundred eighty k long doomed break last week, and and messing. He's messing with Drone Hopper's ambitions to win that that weird breakaway competition that they really that they really want to win, which is basically like how many kilometers you spend out front of the race and. If the break is too short-lived, it like doesn't count or something like that. I haven't gone and looked at the actual rules for this thing yet, but it is uh, Gianni Savio's number one ambition to win this this sort of small Italian team breakaway competition, basically. Yeah, if they're going to like, there's a lot of talk about Rosa was forced to do that move, but if you know if, if the team is forced to put somebody in the breakaway, tick the other half of their team take four of their other writers <laughs> and put them in the breakaway together would get so much more attention and it wouldn't cost their best writer you know what whatever he did out there regardless of how easy he was able to write out there it yeah. wasn't the easiest race he ever did like we heard so many of the other writers in the bunch talk about that day and then yeah. yesterday at the start of yesterday's stage he was on fire i think he ended up taking the king of the mountains jersey yesterday but yeah even even fast forward to the end of yesterday's stage there was no chance of surviving and him and uh, Dombrowski were both literally emptied the tank until the second they were caught. Which, you know, when you're going that well, both of them, save it for a day where you can actually <laughs> go for another one. When you're coming onto the bottom of Blockhouse with 30 seconds, you're you're not winning that stage. It's just not happening. <laughs> not Set even up, close. save it. Yeah. 
Dombro feels like he's got good legs. Might might be able to take something later in the uh, later yeah. in the later in the race. Anyway, let's get into so Thursday again. Just brief brief sort of previews here. Thursday is another interesting one. We got we got a a long drag up to Paso de Boco and which is a cat three, but it's kind of uphill for the first like slightly uphill for literally 97 kilometers and kind of kicks up right uh, in the last seven or eight K, which is what makes it a cat three drop all the way back down. And we've got two more cat threes before the finish in Genoa. Another one that's well, it's kind of tricky to pick. It looks a bit breakaway stagey to me. It's all going to depend on who's mo- motivated to chase. Who's got the pink Jersey at that point, uh, which should probably be the same. I would imagine you have to think that that Trek keeps it somewhat under control, but it could still, you know, a break could be a little ways off the front. Uh, that one could finish with a breakaway move, depending on who gets in that move. I mean, let's not forget that there's a, there's a huge portion of the Giro now that is, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes behind Trek is not going to worry about those riders getting into a breakaway. So that that's probably my pick for Thursday's stage is some kind of breakaway, but another tricky one. Cause those clowns are not that hard. Uh, they're hard, but they're not that hard. And so you could see, you know, a Diego Ulisi kind of character get over those and then win a sprint at the end. And therefore maybe UAE has, has motivation to try hold it all together. And then on Friday, which, uh, we'll do another podcast on Friday. So we'll talk about this stage on Friday, but just so you know, what is coming finishing in Cuneo has one, Cat three kind of near the start with a sprint point right at the bottom. Uh, this one also feels kind of tailor made for a break to be let go. But then I would I'm going to guess reeled back in ahead of the pretty flat finale running. What's your take on it? This potentially could be a repeat of the was it the Messina stage where we've seen some of the sprinters dropped earlier on and then this mad chase for however many kilometers afterwards. And I think the sprinters who survived that day, Giacomo Nizzolo. Arno Damara, of course, won the stage. Gaviria might be keen to try and replicate that again. We've got a steep, what looks like a steep climb, but it's you know marked as a cat three uh, on on the stage. And it's, it seems further away from the finish, but might just be interesting to keep an eye on. It might make it a bit more exciting than a than a stage like that might otherwise have been. Yeah, I think Gaviria is is still very very hungry for a stage win, and if he doesn't get one in the next couple of days, I think he'll he'll be eyeing that stage as a possibility where he could get over that climb. And Cavendish and Ewan perhaps can't, you know, if they stick Formolo on the front and, and tell him to pin it, I think that they could probably get rid of those those sort of just pure sprinters. Maybe maybe even get rid of Arno Arno Demar. Gaviria tends to sprint or t- sorry tends to climb better than all three when he's on form. But we'll see. I think I think that's probably a pretty good shout. Is that these sprinters will view this as an opportunity to wheel down their own their own field and increase their own chances into that finale. Anyway, we'll talk about it on Friday with our next special Jiro pod, but let's get into Zulia women. It's been uh, a show of dominance. Amy, talk me through what's happened in the last couple of days. Demi Vollering. Basically. That's what's happened. More or less. <laughs> that's it. I mean, she it's, it's, it's three, three stages. So yeah, she won three stages in a row. Um, and three stages that that suited her really well. So I guess that's not sort of outside the realm of possibility. But, but how how does this happen? Like how do the, how do the other teams let this happen? Well, I mean, they didn't so much let it happen as just have it happen to them. Um, 
Does that sound really bad? No, I don't no, know. I mean, like, yeah, that's probably a pretty, I think that's a very accurate way to, to describe it. They just couldn't really do much about it. No. Um, I mean, I guess what's also so impressive about it is that SD Works only came to the race with four riders. Um, they only had, I mean, there were four very strong riders, but it was kind of like almost two leaders and two domestiques. So it was Demi and then Ashley Mormon Passio. And then they had Neve Fisher Black and Anna Shackley in support. Um, but I guess, I mean, part of it is also that the terrain of the race is just selective. So someone as strong as Vollering could just do her thing. Um, but yeah, interestingly, Marta Cavalli was there and given her recent results in the Ardennes, you would have expected maybe a bit more from her. Um, not sure what was going on there. I mean, yesterday she kind of just, she just out did everybody in every kind, every field really, like even her, like on the descent, she was just clearly like way ahead of everybody technically and got a gap there. <clears throat> but yeah, she just, I think she clearly had, she was motivated by the fact that she didn't manage to get any wins during the classics, I would imagine as well. And just came to prove it at this race. Waiting for the day that they let Ashley Moore and Passio have leadership, though, on SD Works, because she looks like she's raring to go. Well, that's a good segue, actually, into the little bit that, that Shadi put together. Because, Shadi, this, this race is obviously, it's, it's in your neighborhood. Not too long of a drive to, for, for you to get to. So we sent you over to go chat with some folks. And I believe you, you talked with Ashley, didn't you? Yeah, I spoke, I spoke to Ashley there. And I also spoke to Tim Harris, who owns a house in Belgium. I'll say that because in the interview it sounds a little bit should I say um questionable what I say to him but yes Tim owns a house in Belgium where you can turn up <laughs> as an amateur and race for him and then move on to the pro ranks are you like right, who's been around your house lately what are you <laughs> <up to? laughs> pretty much let's uh let's hear from Shadi and Ashley and Tim in the Basque Country I am at the first, no, sorry, final stage. Here we go, a bit of live coverage from the women's Itzulia Tour de Basque Country 2022. It's a final stage. I'm in downtown Donostia San Sebastian in the pit. It's just before nine o'clock. There's a few fans out considering it's so early. And there's also a few people out who have uh, clearly been out all night. We're going to see who we can grab hold of. All right, we have Ashley Moorman Passio. SD Works. Team's uh, doing all right so far? Yeah, we have a small team, only four riders, but uh, we're punching above our weight, I think. Um, yeah, super strong team. Uh, Demi's on fire. And yeah, all of us um, are, are looking forward to today. It's going to be a hard race. How do you like the Basque region for racing? Because it's certainly punchy. Certainly a bit lumpy, isn't it? We, we, we've recent, well, a couple of weeks back, we had the men's version of this and plenty of people said, why? I haven't Garrett Thomas, for instance, he hadn't raced it since, I think, 2013. He says he remembers why he hasn't, because it's a savage area to race, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm quite familiar racing here. We've always had a tour here once a year called uh, the Mancomin Bira, which has now disappeared, so we have this one. Um, but, yeah, I mean, today is going to be a little bit like the Classicoa, um, which we don't have this year. So um, we've got to make the most of it. Somehow we lost uh, our version of the Classicoa, so today is our day. Do you reckon that was down to... Uh, COVID down to that sort of thing because there was a even the men's was was off for a couple of years and with it not being 
well, one of the major classics anymore. It sort of lost its shine over a few years. Do you reckon it's down to that? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, the COVID time was a was a difficult time for races to keep their sponsorship. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's understandable that we lose some. But, yeah, thankfully we have today an opportunity to race the course because it is really an awesome course. It's super hard, but um, we like it hard <laughs> at SD Works. So, yeah, we're looking forward to today. Warm, bit damp, bit of rain in the air. And once you get outside the city, it seemed to be pretty windy. Do you get nervous? How do you think it's going to pan out? Yeah, well, I must say the heat's a bit of a surprise at this time of the year. Usually we're used to the cold, rainy conditions here. So yesterday it was actually a shock to my system. I totally overheated and, uh, yeah, that wasn't fun. But, um, yeah, today I think we're better prepared with uh, cold bottles, with ice. Um, and, yeah, the wind will be a factor today. It's just kind of interesting here because um, often, you know, we're kind of in the valleys um, and protected. But there are some open sections close to the coast. So, yeah, I think it's a day that we'll have to be attentive all day long um, and, yeah, ready, ready at any moment. Now, if people have listened to the Cycling Tips Freewheeling podcast they will, last week, they will have heard that. The stage race season is definitely building up to the Women's Tour this year. Uh, how has that changed? or is it, Do you think that's going to change how the races are going to be raced this year, how people are entering the, this part of the season? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the Tour de France or Tour de Femme avec Swift is a really big race for us this year. It's definitely a goal for me. Um, yes, I think it has affected how um, riders are preparing. Like we see riders like Elisa Longo-Bugini isn't here. She plans to do the double as far as I understand, the Giro and the Tour de Femme. Um, and Annemiek is not here, but I think that's more to do with um, injury. But yes, I think there are more races on the calendar these days. We have to be more selective and uh, the Tour de Femme will be a big race for, for all the teams who take part. So, yeah. Awesome. I wish you good luck. I won't keep you. Thanks, yeah. Go and sign on, mate. <laughs> okay. Good to see you again. All right, Tim, how are you doing? Very good. What are you doing here? Are you with EF this year? I've been with them all year. Because you don't come to any races anymore, do you? I'd get to a few. Anyway, I'm recording, Tim. Right, I am here with Tim Harris. If you've lived in Belgium, you'll know him. He's, you've got a big house in, I'm trying to think, Tilt Wing. Uh, Tilt Winger, yeah. Tilt Winger. There'll be a few ladies here, I'm guessing, that might have come through your house, is there? Yeah, we've got uh, Mags uh, Valier. She came over and she was doing cyclocross about four or five years ago. So, uh, yeah, she's really progressed from cyclocross to being a good road rider. You're with EF in the team car today. How's the season gone so far for you guys? Yeah, it's gone really good. Uh, we won a race last week in, uh, in uh, Navarra, in Pamplona, with... Um, Veronica Uwes. She also won in Luxembourg two weeks ago and we had a couple of wins uh, in uh, Tour of the Gila also 10 days ago or so. So at the moment it's going really good. Obviously the racing sort of sticks around here for the next couple of weekends. You've got Tour of Burgos next. Uh, Durango next. Durango of course, Burgos. Um, so all going on. It's the stage race season now, isn't it? I've asked, uh, just asked Ashley Moorman about the build-up, I suppose, to the Tour de Femme, the, the Women's Tour de France, and how that how that's going to play out on the next couple of weeks. I think you're forgetting also we got the Giro d'Italia, so I don't want anybody to uh, just 100% concentrate on the Tour. Uh, there's a lot of big races coming up. Uh, tour is one of them. But uh, don't need to overly... Um, overly uh, forget that we've got other races as well so yeah the, the, you know we've now transitioned from the classics to the stage race season so yeah there's a lot of good races coming up so uh, Tour de France being amongst them 
that wind's picking up, isn't it? Is it going to be a good day for uh, a breakaway? Bit of a, what do you reckon? Along the coast road's going to be a bit savage, I reckon. Well, this I live in Belgium and uh, this is actually more windy than Belgium, but it's about 30 degrees of uh, 30 degrees of heat here. So uh, uh, I don't know what effect it will have on the race, but uh, it's certainly very hot. Riding into a hairdryer on medium, innit, I reckon, today? <laughs> At the moment, it feels like the Sahara. Who, who on the team do we need to look out for, not just today, but coming up throughout the sort of stage race season? I think you have to look at uh, Veronica Urs. She's already had a couple of wins. And Chris uh, Dubel-Hicks, it's a difficult name to remember, hicks got. Uh, so, yeah, Chris Dubel and, and Veronica, they've both been riding well. Uh, but the team actually, yesterday, uh, when we hit the last climb, the entire team was still in the bunch. I think with, apart from ST Works, we're the only team that still had a full uh, full team at the bottom after a very hilly stage. So yeah, everybody's pretty good. Awesome. I wish you luck today, Tim. Thanks. All right. I'm going to duck behind uh, this wall and round out this podcast. It is awesome to see uh, that the crowds are building up here. So it should be a good finish to the race and the stage race, obviously. If you want more um, women's racing news, check out the freewheeling podcast, obviously, weekly about cycling tips. But I'm going to throw you back to everybody in the studio. Well, well, bedrooms and cupboard. That is if Dane's on. Amy, you sort of raised a question or mentioned you would like to see Ashley get leadership at SD Works. But like after the weekend that Vollering has just had... Is there ever going to be a time that ha- that happens? Like, given that Vollering can do pretty much everything that Ashley did this weekend, and then can finish it off in most scenarios, it, you know, is, is that kind of curtains for Ashley's chances? Yeah, I mean, we sort of saw them have this weird dynamic through the classics too, like in the Ardennes, where they kind of had this two up leadership role almost. It seemed, and like neither appeared to be particularly riding for the other. Um, but after this now, like obviously Demi is the, the leader there. But having said that, this is terrain that suits her. Whereas Ashley is much more of a, like, I hate saying like pure climber on women on the women's side, cause there aren't really the races for that. But say for example, like a long climb, like the ones that are coming up in the Tour de France Femme, I think she's better suited to that than Vollerin. Vollerin's a bit more of like a punchy kind of, I mean, I could eat my words here, but she just, for me, like on the long climbs, especially steep ones, she's not, that's more like, yeah, sorry, I just like completely I, I I get what you mean. Coming into this weekend, and it seems silly to say it now, but I had sort of question marks about Demi Vollerin, you know, given how difficult the terrain is in the Basque country, you know, we, we've seen her win, win the age, obviously, so she can, but for three days over such sustained difficult terrain, I, I just didn't know if Vollering would be, well, nobody knew the two going one, three stages. So, you know, then to take that up another level, go to the, the Tour the tour de France and plunge to Belfi, I guess you would have to look to, to Ashley then. And, and I guess that's where her chances lay. But obviously there's much, much fewer and further between. And that's also anemic territory. Um, so it's kind <laughs> that's of... That's part of the problem. Yeah. yeah. Ashley will always get leadership at uh, esports worlds, though. <laughs> but surely mm. they can have to. <laughs> surely they can have to give us some kind of leadership at some point because she is retiring at the end of this season as well, isn't she? Yeah, she is. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do think that she's a pretty she's a pretty solid bet for Planche de Belfi. 
on at, at the Tour de France. And so, you know, that's a, that'd be a pretty good way to go out, right? Like that, that would be, it makes sense. I think for that team to give her that opportunity, say, this is your moment. She's probably better than anybody else on the team at that sort of climb, which I mean, plus Belfies is serious. It's long, right? It's 40 minutes plus. Um, yeah, that would be a good one for her. Oh. Her thing is kind of like sustained steep climbs like that. Like she's got the QM on Rocacorba here, which is like a disgusting nine kilometer steep climb that you hate unless you're like a skinny climber. So <laughs> she, yeah, that's her kind of her thing. And yeah, you'd ha- you'd expect that like, even if they don't go for her on GC at the tour, they'd probably at least go for a stage win with her. Yeah. So. I mean, I was kind of joking about the esports thing, but it's, you know, uh, esports is essentially a watts per kilo contest, right? And there's a reason why she does well <laughs> in Zwift racing. So, well, well, we'll return to that. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. To wrap up nerd racing alert. here, uh, we do have a bit of a nerd nugget for everybody today. Ronan, you spotted some new Campagnolo wheels at the Giro. Yeah, the... Uh- of a quick nerd nugget this week but yeah just spotted uh, the whole uae team emirates squad were racing on unreleased campagnola wheels just no comment from campag as to what exactly they are but presumably given that they've used these wheels for the first time on the most mountainous stage so far of the giro and they retained their disc brake bikes for that stage where previously they would have swapped to rim brake bikes that these are some sort of lightweight wheels that help with getting the bikes closer to that 6.8 kilogram limit. So, yeah, not much ready to report on them yet. They appear to be tubular, but presumably if they are released to the public, there'll be some sort of tubeless or clincher option as well. Looks like an entirely new rim. The famous Campag G3 spoking pattern is gone. Uh, more traditional sort of lacing on, on these new wheels and new hubs as well. So, yeah, as I said, not a whole deal to report on just yet but if you do want to know more there is an article up on the website and you can check out it the new hyperon could be hopefully the new hyperon it looks a little bit deep to be the hyperon really it would be it would be a big change from what the hyperons previously were but we can hope but does does the does the old hyperon actually kind of have a place in modern cycling like i'm not sure that Probably does sure. on like a an ethos or something like that, you know, just a just for ride modern weight more yeah. yeah. In terms of modern racing, yeah, I think the Hyperons days are well and truly gone at, at this yeah. point. There's very rarely do we see, you know, teams opting for the shallowest rim profile they can right. they can get. I, I'm just wondering if like you know is the, is this the modern Hyperon right? It's kept it's kept Yellow basically said well, there's no point in developing a 23 millimeter rim. We're just going to go 35 40 plus. And call that the climbing rim now, because that's essentially what climbing rims are now uh, versus 10 years ago where people viewed those things a little bit differently. Since Pizarro stopped riding Roubaix, really the Hyperons have lost their their place. I think think it was the same year. It was the year that Zip made like a massive deal about about their wheels finishing Roubaix. And that was the year that Pizarro finished third on a pair of Hyperons and like 23 mil tires or something like that. Those wheels are sweet. The good old days. The good old days of the Hyperon. Anyway, I hope Hyperons are are back. Like Ronan said, go check out segmenttips.com. We've got a bit more information on those Campanula wheels. Not a ton, but a bit. Finally today, a a brief moment. Um, we wanted to mention the the death of Mo Wilson, a, a rising gravel star uh, in the U.S. here 
gravel and mountain biking, I would say. Um, she was shot and killed at a house in Austin, Texas last week. I think on Wednesday it was released on Thursday. We don't have a ton of information about this. Uh, our friends and colleagues over at Vela News have been have been digging into it a little bit further and trying to find out what's happened. We just don't have a lot of information at this point. Um, but we do know that she was shot and killed in a house in Austin, Texas. Uh, and yeah, she was just a she was a phenomenal talent. She was you know on the rise just in the last year or two, uh, at least sort of publicly, you know, to, to the point where where those of us following the gravel scene had started to take notice. And she appeared to be, you know, on a trajectory that could have sent her to, to Europe for, for mountain bike racing or just to the biggest, the biggest gravel events in the world. And was also by all accounts, just a, a lovely human being. Uh, and so condolences to everybody who knew her, who had ever run into her, who is part of that, that gravel and off-road scene in the United States. It's just an awful, awful thing to have happened last week and with that very sad note we will be back on friday with more from the giro d'italia whatever happens over these next couple interesting sprinty ish stages so keep an eye out on your favorite podcast service whatever you happen to use and we'll see you then thanks everybody bye-bye